This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message. Well, welcome today. My name is Spencer. So glad that you're with us. Today, we're going to start a brand new series called The Last Week. So um, if you think about it, Jesus lived approximately 33 years. That's 1,716 weeks. I did the math myself. And uh, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us the story of Jesus, spend approximately 30% of their time on the final week of Jesus, the last week of Jesus, the week that begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem and ends with his shameful crucifixion. So we would do well listening to this last week of Jesus as the Bible spends 30% of its time telling us about this last week. And so the plan for this series is really, really simple. Every week in this in the series, we're just simply going to lift up another day of that week. We're going to look through what did he do on Sunday, what was Monday, what was Tuesday. And as we do this, we are going to see this really rich and incredibly compelling picture of who Jesus is and what he does for us that leads us to um, Good Friday and the crucifixion. So today, we'll be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start with um, what we call Palm Sunday as Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week. Here's how it goes. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says, as they, that is Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem, and so pretty much everything this week is going to happen in Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, um, we're going to read a lot about Bethany this week because Bethany becomes the home base uh, for Jesus as he goes through the week. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's kind of like a suburb, I guess, of Jerusalem. And, and the reason it's, it's his home base is because this is the home of Mary, Martha, and his friend Lazarus. And I mention that because just days before this takes place, um, Jesus happens to come to Bethany because his friend Lazarus has died and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Incredible miracle of the New Testament. So remember, Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. That just happened. You can imagine the rumors and the gossip that is spreading all over that area. So Jesus comes to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and then he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. Now, I I love this. <laughs> I mean, imagine putting yourself in the shoes of these two disciples. Like, what would you be thinking? Jesus tells you to go and do this. And he's like, well, hold on a second, Jesus. You want me just to walk up to that house where I don't know those people and, and take that donkey that's just tied up randomly outside that's, that's it. That's, all, that's the plan. Just, just walk up to this house in this small village where everyone knows each other. I don't know them. And just take this donkey. And Jesus is like, yeah. They're like, well, okay. So they do it. Verse 4. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. Jesus knew what he's talking about. And as they untied it, I'm sure like looking over their shoulder, wondering who's watching them. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? Well, they answered as Jesus has told them to. Remember, what Jesus had told them was simply this. The Lord needs it and we'll send it back shortly. Like, you know, is that enough? Well, everyone there was just, oh, okay, you can do that then. And so the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and then they threw their uh, their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Now this all of a sudden catches some folks' attention because what Jesus is doing here is just layered with meaning. Verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road, like they're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem. 
Well, others spread branches that they had cut in the field. And so Mark leaves this out detail, but the Gospel of John tells us these are palm branches, hence Palm Sunday. Those who went ahead and those who followed, almost like they're clearing the path for Jesus, they shouted out these words, um, Hosanna, Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, which is all about praising God for his victory over his enemies. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Those last two lines are not from the Bible, but were popular sayings at the time. We'll talk about that later. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. And since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And this is the first day of this incredibly important week. So what just happened? I mean, why did a parade break out in the city streets of Jerusalem? And, and what, what did people think was taking place here? So to get our heads around this, we, we need to dive into just a little bit of history to understand what's going on in the year 33 in that city of Jerusalem that would make these crowds take off their coats so that a man riding on a donkey could walk on it? And what would make these crowds go and cut down branches in the fields in order to wave them around? And what would make these crowds start to shout these things like Hosanna in the highest and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Like this is all very, very strange. So what do they think is happening right now? Well, a little history here, very, very brief history. But the year 33 in Jerusalem, um, in the year 33, Jerusalem is controlled uh, by the Romans. Before the Romans, uh, Jerusalem was controlled by the Greeks. Before the Greeks, Jerusalem was controlled by the Persians. Before the Persians, Jerusalem was controlled by the Babylonians. So it's been about 500 years since um, the, the Jerusalem and the people of, of God, the, the Jewish people have, have, have had a son of David, the Davidic line of um, uh, sit on the throne and to lead the people. And so David, of course, in the Old Testament is the ideal king and he's the promised king that God had sent. And we had a whole series on him last summer. You can go back and watch that. But in the year 33, Jerusalem is um, ruled by the Romans and, and Roman rule is just brutal. I mean, they tax you to death. And so that's what that's how you keep the peace is you, you pay these exorbitant taxes. And if you don't pay the taxes, there's all kinds of consequences. And if you wanna rebel against their rule, well, there are crosses um, lifted up all the time outside of all the city gates, just to remind you of who's really in charge. And so while life in Jerusalem in 33 is marked by the Roman rule, there's also this undercurrent of hope that has been stirring among the people. There's all kinds of other writing, writing that's not even in the Bible, but writing that we do have historically about the, the undercurrent of hope that's being stirred um, among, among these people, this, this undercurrent of hope that, that God is going to rescue his people, that, um, this hope is based on all kinds of prophecies and other historical things that have taken place um, during this time. This undercurrent of hope is that God is going to raise up a deliverer. And this deliverer is going to overthrow the Romans. And this deliverer is going to restore the kingdom of Israel to, to, the, to the line of David. And this, this deliverer is, um, is, is called the anointed one. That's, that's how people talk about him. That this is the anointed one, the deliverer. In Hebrew, we call the anointed one the Messiah. In Greek, that same term, anointed one, is translated as, as Christ, and that's where those, those words come from. And so while life in Jerusalem is marked by this brutal Roman rule, there's also this undercurrent of hope that's beginning to stir that God is going to raise up his anointed one. And, and um, at, at this point in, in Jesus' life and ministry, he's quite famous. I mean, the rumors have been circling around him for some time, and people have heard the rumors about this carpenter turned rabbi who's 
who's come to town and they're all wondering, is this him? Is this, is this it? I mean, is, is this the anointed one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that God is going to send in order to save us from the Romans and the brutal rule and in order to restore the kingdom back to us and to his, his, his uh, descendant David? Now, they've all heard the stories. They've all heard the rumors. People have talked about him walking on water and casting out demons. And people have heard the stories of what happened on the hillside when he fed the 5,000. And the stories have been circulating about what took place in Bethany just a few days before this with Lazarus. And so, so all these rumors are spreading. And Jesus gets on that donkey today, on that day very, very intentionally. This is not just because he's tired, but he does this to fulfill prophecy because this is what the prophet Zechariah had said what would take place with the Messiah, the anointed one. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, prophesied it like this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the crowds see this famous rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, coming into Jerusalem, into David's city, riding on donkey. And they say, whoa, th this is it. It's happening. He, he's here. The anointed one is here. And so they start yelling out these lines like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And these are not just like nice Bible quotes that they're quoting right now. These are charged political statements. This would be like words that people have been using for centuries to describe this undercurrent of hope. These are political kinds of aspirations of what's going to take place. This would be like someone in our, our own culture using phrases like, don't tread on me, or give me liberty, or give me death. These are like political kinds of statements that we recognize immediately, and that's just exactly what had been taking place in Jerusalem. They would have recognized it immediately as charged political statements. And this, this is not just a parade that broke out on that Sunday afternoon. This is more like a, like a political protest. Like the temperature is rising and everyone there is, is, is thinking the same thing. Here is the anointed one. He's here. It's happening. The, the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. The son of David is going to sit on the throne again. He's going to overthrow our enemies, the Romans, and we're going to be free at last after 500 years of, of, of other people and other rule taking place. And what I find so fascinating about Palm Sunday is that Jesus, he lets it all happen. Like clearly, the crowds are celebrating Jesus as the victorious king, the son of David, and Jesus just, he lets it all happen. Because of course, I mean, they're not wrong. He, he is the victorious king, the son of David, but at the same time, they certainly don't get it. I mean, yes, he's the victorious king, but he's not bringing the victory that you're expecting. And, and yes, he's going to overthrow our enemies, but way bigger enemies than the Romans. And yes, he will establish his kingdom, but not an earthly kingdom like we think about it. And Jesus is not at all the king that they were expecting, but, but he is the king that they need. And so when we understand this history a little bit and we think about their misunderstanding, I think it's tempting to read Palm Sunday and kind of judge the crowds that are there. Like, ah, how could you, how could you miss it? I mean, how could you have such a limited... Um, understanding of what he was going to do? How could you have be so short-sighted that you don't get the fullness of what he's about to do? I mean, he's been talking about it for some time, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die, he's going to be raised again. Like, how do you not understand um, what's taking place here? And so how, how could they make Jesus just fit into this like 
political ideology that they have? How could they make Jesus fit into this box that they have? And so I think it's, I think it's tempting to judge them because it's like, how could you have such a small view of Jesus? Like he's going to do this when he's really come to do this really massive, expansive thing that's for all of creation. But instead you just, you have him limited to such a, a such a box. And so it's so, I think it's tempting to judge them. But, but at the same time, I'm like, I think that's kind of human nature because while it's tempting to judge them, I, I bet, I bet you do that too. You also probably put Jesus in a box and limit him to what you think he can do and have expectations about him that are formed by your own understandings. And I say that not to judge you, but because I know that I do that. I think it's simply human nature that we do this. Author and pastor Tim Keller once said this. He said, most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. And it does not come that way. I mean, think about it, a, a consultant um, gives advice. He suggests solutions to problems. A consultant helps you find a new way of seeing things. Maybe a consultant helps you, you know, achieve your goals. And so we look to Jesus for advice. We help that maybe he can help me live a little bit better, a little bit more fulfilling. Maybe he gives me advice on how to be less anxious, or less fearful, maybe advice on how to have a better marriage, advice on how to be more fulfilled in life, advice on how to raise my kids, advice. But Jesus didn't come to give advice. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem that day as a consultant hoping helping us just to live a little bit better lives. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem that day just to help us accomplish you know, our already formed goals and to live into our already formed ideologies. Jesus is not a consultant. He is a king. He's the king of kings, in fact. I think about how the earliest Christians talked about Jesus. Let me give you some examples from the Bible um, of how the earliest Christians described Jesus and talked about him. And these examples might sound like they're all over the place, but as you read through them, I bet you're going to hear a common through line that, um, that is used just so much through the Bible. So here's just a few examples of how the earliest Christians um, talked and understood um, who Jesus is and see if you can catch the through line here. So Romans 10, verse nine. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Galatians 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I'm gonna stop there after 10 examples because I think you're probably getting it. But the earliest confession of who Jesus is was a simple three-word phrase. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is Lord. In fact, over 200 times, the 27 books in the New Testament talk about how Jesus is Lord. Now, why did the earliest Christians have this confession that Jesus is Lord and just use this over and over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament? Maybe it was because 
It is human nature for us to have these boxes of who Jesus is, these already preconceived notions of what he's going to do, these limited understandings of his fullness and his, what his accomplishments are. And so maybe, just maybe, like we all need to be reminded on a regular basis that he doesn't come to fit those boxes. He doesn't come to fit those expectations. Rather, he comes as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet it is human nature to put Jesus in a box of what I can understand and what I'm comfortable with and what I, what I want my life to look like and how I want him to do for me. And this is how we approach Jesus so, so often. And, and I just have to tell you, as I've spent my life following Jesus, or rather I should probably say it like this, as I've spent my life uh, learning to follow Jesus, um, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think Jesus cares all that much about what I think and what I'm comfortable with. I don't think he cares all that much about how I feel about things. That's not to say he doesn't care about me because he cares deeply about all of us. But I've come to the conclusion that, that I don't think he really cares what I think or feel or how comfortable I am with things because, because that's not how this, this works. Like I've, I, I don't think, um, I've never felt like the Lord has you know, spoken to me and been like, Spencer, how do you feel about forgiving that person who said that thing about you and spreading those rumors or saying that thing publicly? Or how do, you, how do you feel about forgiving them? I never feel like the Lord has asked me how I feel about forgiving that person. I don't feel like that's how this relationship has worked. Or I've never felt like the Lord was like, okay, so Spencer, if it's inconvenient to tithe this month, you know, just skip it. It's okay. You, you know, you'll get around to it next month. Or I've never felt like the Lord is like, you know, if your prayer life, you know, if it's boring to pray, you just don't feel like you're doing much. Maybe you don't need to you know, do that. Maybe you don't need to work on that all that much anymore. Like I've never felt like the Lord has asked me how I feel about things and what I think about things or what, how comfortable I am. No, as I've spent my life learning to follow Jesus, I've come to the conclusion that he, he doesn't really care about what I think about things. He doesn't really care about how I feel about him. He doesn't really care about how comfortable I am being faithful. He just expects me to follow. After all, he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And if Jesus is Lord, if he is the King, then my only option is to lay down my life before him and to say, thy will be done. You run the show. You lead my life. You be the king that you are, not the one that I expect you to be. This reminds me of a, of a story I think I've shared with you before, and I'll share it with you, I'm sure, in the future, because I find it so inspiring and just so truthful. Um, this is a story of a, of a famous missionary named Leslie Newbegin. He was a missionary to India in the 1930s to 70s. And Newbegin tells a story of when he was a young man, and he's starting to feel this, this pull or this call of God to serve um, as a, in, in ministry in some form. So he, he went one day to, the, to his local church in the afternoon, and he sat in his, into the sanctuary in the first pew there. And, and he sat there and he was praying and he was trying to devote himself to God fully for this work that God had for him. And he was already a believer, but he just wanted to lay everything down to God and say, God, you use me and, and, and use me in your life and I'm gonna surrender to you. And so he had some paper with him and uh, Newbegin started to write down all of the things that he was going to do for God to, to serve him. And so he wrote, you know, these things, I'm gonna preach the gospel. I'm gonna I'm gonna not pursue wealth. I'm gonna fast once a week. I'm gonna, you know, move overseas. I'm gonna do whatever it is that I'm gonna give money away. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do these things for God. And he took this piece of paper and he laid it down the altar in his local church, an act of sacrifice. And Newbegin says that as he put this paper down, he expected to have this, this moment with the Lord, this, this powerful thing where God shows up and encounters the presence of God. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he puts his tape paper down on the table and he says he just feels nothing. <laughs> 
So he sits back down on the first pew and he thinks to himself, I wonder why that wasn't a, this powerful moment with the Lord. I thought it would be. So he takes out another piece of paper. He's like, well, maybe those things weren't enough. So he started to write down different things, harder things that he was gonna do for God. He's not just gonna tithe, he's gonna give away most of his wealth. He's not just gonna fast once a week, he's gonna fast three days a week. He's not just gonna preach the gospel, he's gonna be a missionary to the poorest of the poor. He just writes down thing after thing after thing after thing that he's gonna do that are just harder to do. And he takes the paper and he lays it on the altar and he sacrifices himself to God. And he says this time again, he feels nothing. It's like, it's like God is absent, it's like where, where is God? And he, he thought he's gonna have this spiritual moment and there's just nothing. So he sits back on this first pew and he's kind of let down because he seems like he's missing it. He says he sits in silence for a few moments and he's wondering, what does God want from me? What, what, is, what does he want me to do? And so another idea dawns on him and he takes one more piece of paper, this time totally blank, and he lays the blank piece of paper on the table. And this time he prays that prayer of Jesus from the Lord's Prayer, you know, thy will be done. God, take my life, you write this script. And he says at that moment, his heart was just filled with peace because now he was in the will of God. The will of God is not that he's coming to God with plans and goals and ambitions and ideas of what God wants him to do, but rather he is able to, to be squarely in the will of God, which is just simply the place of surrender, of recognizing that he is the king, that he is the Lord of Lords, that he comes with his own plans, his own ambition, his own goals, and my job is not to bring my own expectations to him, but rather to lay my life before him and to say, thy will be done. I just love that image of surrender, blank piece of paper. Because when Jesus is king and I open my life to his fullness, and I begin to confess that he is the Lord, the best possible response to that is a blank piece of paper, because that means I'm letting go. I'm letting go of my ambitions and my plans and my goals. I'm letting go of how I want things to go. I'm letting go of my ideas of comfort and what I think is gonna bring me peace, what I think is the answer to my problems. I'm letting, I'm letting these things go because I'm just saying, okay, if you are the Lord and you are the King, the only response I can possibly have is to say, thy will be done. Thy will be done in every possible area of my life. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem to start this last monumental week of his life. The crowds begin to cheer him on as the king. Now they have a very limited understanding of what that king is and they have all kinds of false expectations of what he's going to do. And because of these false expectations, they, they put him in a box and they, and they have a script of what they expect him to do and they miss who he really is and what he will accomplish by the end of the week. As we celebrate Jesus, let's not do the same thing. Let's not come to him with preconceived ideas and notions of how our life and how the world should work. Let's not just bring what we hope to happen and expect him to do those things, but rather let's come to him as the true king that he is and lay down our lives before him with a simple prayer of surrender and confession, thy will be done. Thy will be done over my family, over my church, over my city, over my fears, my future, my vocation, my plans, my relationships, thy will be done. Lord, you write the script. Let's pray together. So Father, today, um, as we celebrate you as the King of Kings, you came into Jerusalem 
celebrated for that very fact, even though the crowds had such a narrow, limited understanding of your reality. Lord, we confess that we do as well so often. We have such a small understanding of who you are. And so the only response we can possibly have is to come to you with a blank piece of paper, to ask you to lead our lives, to ask you to take over our future, to take over our marriages, to take over our singleness, to take over our finances, to take over our resources, our vocations, our understandings, our plans for the future, what we have. Lord, would you lead our lives? Thy will be done. We surrender to you because you are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords and we celebrate you. We thank you that you have come to save us. As we walk through this series over the next several weeks, we are gonna celebrate the power and the goodness and the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. For anyone who's with us who doesn't know your power, your love, your grace over us, we just wanna pray a simple prayer today. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin and would you lead my life? Lord, we love you and we thank you for how you have come for us as we celebrate your goodness, your power, your kingdom, that has come for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Schweitzer podcast. We hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging. If you enjoyed this experience, please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors. Thanks again for stopping by and remember, you are loved.